Welcome back to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we critically examine a space where creativity and potential for progress clash with unhinged, soul-sucking speculation. We're talking about the art market, of course. What other speculative bubble would we possibly be talking about? We're joined by artist and Gonzo Art World reporter Hildy Lynn Helfenstein, aka Jerry Gagosian, and Matthew Capasso, formerly of Christie's, now director of Fairchain, a company actively working to finally, once and for all, give artists a cut of secondary sales of their own work. Hildy and Matthew give us the rundown on waning galleries, expanding auction houses, and the great game the art flippers are playing both online and off. Will the market eat everything? Is it all street art's fault? With Paris Hilton shilling NFTs for Sotheby's, is there even a reason for art criticism to exist anymore? I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guests are Hildy Lynn Helfenstein of Jerry Gagosian and Matthew Capasso of Fairchain. Let's get into it. Oh, WWJD. WWJD. Yeah, what would Jerry do? Could you both introduce yourselves? Of course. So I'm Matthew Capasso. I'm a director at a company called Fairchain, which is actually is enabling artists and gallery resale royalties in the US market using the latest technologies. And then prior to that, for the last couple of years, I was actually in the belly of the beast at Christie's. Nice. Uh, so this was actually my first auction season outside of the auction world in a while. Uh, and it was thrilling to see. But before that, I actually have not always been an art world professional. I was traditional finance for a long time and did a, uh, a business degree in Milan, Italy, fell in love with art, got really interested in the market, and then took the job at Christie's and been off the races since. I also curate shows, do a lot of projects, independent stuff in New York City, show young emerging artists, and do a lot of charitable stuff in the art world as well. Thank you. And Hildy? Um, my name is Hildy Lynn Helfenstein, aka at Jerry Gagosian <laughs> on the internet. I'm an artist with a dark past of art dealing, curating, interning at galleries, and doing anything I could do with my worthless art degrees to not fall into financial destitution. And I have since phoenixed via the internet into a brand online <laughs> and a platform. Sounds- yes, and a community. Sounds good. Yes, I would say something like um, you've created these digital platforms that through memes, diaristic accounts and offering a broad spectrum, easily accessible. And yet I have to say very precise critique of the myths of the post-digital art world have brought a whole nother generation into understanding. And Matthew, it's great to have you as well. How cool to have somebody who actually knows about finance, investing, comes to art through that angle, because I think that's sort of where we're going to land with this podcast. So the media angle, this 
speculation angle, the changing art world as a backdrop. We are a week off of the New York auctions, modern and contemporary auctions, which are always taking the temperature of the art world. We're one week or really a few days before the VIP opening days of Art Basel Miami Beach, which will be extra interesting this year because there's been this, we keep calling it like hashtag base Miami. There's been this migration from Silicon Valley to Miami. There's a ton of tech money. It's like the great weirdening came to the art world this year. So you guys, I think are the perfect people to speak to and help us unpack a little bit of this. But maybe we could just start off by asking where are your heads right now in the art world as it's reconfigured over the past year with the rise of NFTs and digital platforms and maybe just some like broad stroke comments so we understand where you're positioned in all of this. I'll start off with an anecdote. So at Christie's this past two weeks when they opened the view for their evening sale, and I had been used to walking through those hallways. It's a massive gallery space. And we're combing through and we're looking at Rothko's and Van Gogh's and Basquiat's and some contemporary artists, Shara Hughes and all these works. And then in the corner, as you kind of veer into the direct edge of the gallery space, is this spinning moon man walking virtual screen. Inside of that gallery, I think there was 25 people and the average age was probably 18 years old. And it's something that I had never seen before. And that happened to be the Beeple sculpture that sold for $25 million to the Swiss kind of entrepreneur guy. And I'm looking at that. And based on my experience at Christie's, I'm like, I've never seen this before. Right. Like there is a parallel world happening in the art market that's converging at places like Christie's and these other institutions. And as we looked and absorbed this Beeple monument, I walked down the hallway and Logan Paul of YouTube fame is coming right down the hallway, vlog camera in hand, ready to go look at this Beeple Wow. Meanwhile, there's the Rothko's and there's de Kooning and there's these masterworks of 20th century and even the 19th century next door. And those kids don't care about it at all. And major like regular art world figures like Louis Gauzer, like sort of more traditional people that are sort of niche to the fine art world, like walking the halls, preparing to like decide on what lots they're going to be bidding on and everything. And you just see that like, there is a sort of doming experiment that's happening right now in the art world between like tech, NFT, crypto. I want to say bros, but I know there's a lot of women in that space as well. The interesting thing is, is that the art world, the traditional art world has been an analog game for a long time. And what's interesting is that these people who are chasing after NFTs initially, much like the street art movement, how that sort of slowly matriculated into the art market like a drug and got people addicted. The people that started out collecting street art are now chasing after very traditional, old school, IRL, three-dimensional paintings. You know, they're not buying street art anymore. And a lot of people are always like a little ashamed, like, oh yeah, I started off with cause, but now I buy really great stuff. And they'll give you like a long list of their really great stuff that they collect. But I think that's also going to end up happening in the NFT sphere as well, because the true ultimate trophy, I think, are these physical objects. Mm. Like age of mechanical reproduction, say what you will, we all want to see the Mona Lisa in person. <laughs> right. You saw that with the results. Uh, there's a guy named Justin's son. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of him, but oh, yeah. right after... 
right after the sale, he came out. And I believe last year he had purchased a massive Picasso as well, privately from one of the auction houses. And he is a guy who's invested heavily in the crypto sphere in this metaverse space. And he walked away with the Giacometti for 70 plus million dollars at Sotheby's from the Maclo collection. So you're seeing that blend already at the high end. And I would imagine there is this gateway effect as Hildy's alluding to of uh, crypto to physical fine art. And it's exciting. And the auction houses, by the way, absolutely love it because that creates a whole new class of bidders and people to market to. And last point on that is that Sotheby's and Christie's, they're adept at identifying a new market. So they're expanding product offerings and things like sneakers, kind of this whole supreme collectible toy space, dinosaur dinosaur fossils, handbags, all these (laughs) other types of things that are high margins, high volume commodity businesses that they're able to cross-sell additionally with this new audience. So you see it as like a carrot. Like basically the auction houses are seeing an aging legacy collector class and they want to make sure that they can onboard a generation of new wealth. And so whatever it takes, like obviously the sneaker market is basically the same mechanics as the art market. So why not sell those? So you're putting down a gangplank for people to walk across the divide. And or, and I mean, also it seems like maybe you're saying that the NFT craze, et cetera, and being adopted or supported by Sotheby's and presence at Art Basel, it's not not as disastrous as we might think. It's sort of just this cringe initial bubble of excitement, similar to when street art hit the right. real, the capital A art world scene. And that'll actually bring in a lot of new interest and money to the more important art historical stuff. And we're just in one of those little cringe bubbles right now. Yeah, I think, I think that's accurate. And make no mistake, the auction houses, what they see in NFTs is a new revenue stream. Mm-hmm. You right. know, the, these houses have been very stagnant for a long time. They, they do well and they have 300 plus years old for sure. But in recent times, NFT departments, and you actually see them now at the auction houses, they've hired specialists and coordinators and infrastructure underneath. They've changed their payments and their legal system to accommodate crypto payments. You saw Ollie Barker at the Sotheby's sale, the head uh, auctioneer, take bids in Ether live. Call it out. I forget which lot. I think they call banking. So what they see now is a chance to monetize in the space. And it it creates shareholder value and revenue. And they had a really bad 2020. This is a new market. Exciting. But the ramifications of that is, pros or cons, is that this is a validator for NFTs in, in the capital A art space. So Christie's, Sotheby's, these are historic institutions that when they put their brand on something, they really signal to the market that this is a highly collectible, desirable object with intrinsic value that should be secondarily sold and acquired, et cetera. And we'll see. I mean, previously, your only option to purchase NFTs are on platforms like OpenSea or any of these other types of marketplaces. Now you can go to Christie's.com and buy one. Right. Christie's now is like curating with Noah Davis a enclave on oh, OpenSea yeah. or how, I don't know how I you mean, describe what it. Is, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I'm pretty sure OpenSea's volume this last quarter was at least as high or higher than than the auction houses. So I do wonder, like, when is OpenSea going to buy a legacy auction house? <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> I think, I think it's much more likely that something that there's these new configurations of capital that are really staggering amounts accumulated very quickly. I think there's going to be some reverse mergers, basically. Eventually, um, but you saw Sotheby's defend their turf a little bit with the announcement of Metaverse, which is a Sotheby's literally NFT platform themselves. So essentially, yeah. encroaching in the open I mean, space, own that in house. Right. I mean, obviously they have a big brand moat, but eventually, you know, if, if there's no, well, I guess there's security overhead of dealing with entities and crypto, and that is something you have to concern with. But overall, it's a cheaper business to run. 
So <laughs> you would think that that would eventually overtake it if it's just purely about the business or about the numbers. I mean, selling NFTs is very ideal from a auction house. Yeah, I, I think just my experience at the auction houses, you know, trying trying to market and sell physical artworks that are old that require shipping, and this is an underrated right. thing. The auction houses compete extremely heavily for the top works in the markets. Yeah. So these Maclo collection, great example, right? Probably a billion dollar asset value collection. The auction houses, trust me, went tooth to nail fighting, negotiating, giving away profit, loans, financial engineering to try to win that. And an NFT platform, especially we're seeing now primary sales of NFTs. There's no dealer involved with the Beeple sale. The Urs Fisher work that came to auction this last last two weeks, primary sale. It's very low cost. It's high return. There's a great depth of bidding. And the auction houses are enjoying it. And I think, honestly, they're striking a demand in the market that wants it. So, so kudos to them. What do you think about artists making their own marketplaces for their own NFTs? I mean, Damien Hurst obviously kind of did that with his collection. I think that's going to be an emerging trend where the marketplace is the gallery, is the destination, and it's all vertically integrated by the artist. We've talked to a couple artists that are interested in doing that, you know, really cutting out all of the middlemen. I just want to say one thing about that. There was a meme, the picture of like SpongeBob all like, it actually looks like a Picasso, <laughs> but it says artists trying to be their own curator, press and marketing team, administrator, technician, studio manager, art handler, social media manager, web designer, application writer, archivist, and photographer who documents all the work at once. You know, as somebody who studies the art world professionally now, I hear the demonization constantly of like traditional art galleries. I mean, auction houses are another thing. Yes, there can be like dirty workings, but ultimately there are services that traditional art galleries provide artists that I think shouldn't be taken for granted. And what I think a lot of artists are going to end up doing is accidentally recreating the wheel because you're going to have to hire administration. You're going to have to hire archivists. You're going to have to hire accountants and people to do your money and then people to broker your deals, especially when the assets become worth so much on secondary market you know, and, and, and you want to track where it's going, like you're going to recreate a gallery. It's going to happen. Well, then the question is, can you do that for less than 50% of your gross margin? Because that's the problem is, I mean, it's not a good deal for artists to give up 50% of your sales to a gallery all the time. I mean, that's just generally, I think, really shitty. Especially when your gallery has been not as savvy to know how to position you within the new media ecology. That's like the other problem. Well, especially in that case, I mean, especially with artists that are trying to do NFTs and trying to like bring their moribund 20th century galleries with them, and then they're still asking for a cut. That's crazy. But I just mean, in general, the business model of you know, especially if you have an exclusivity with a gallery, the gallery has a whole stable of artists. It's just like, from a business standpoint, the artist has been fucked over. And yes, obviously, there's very essential services that galleries provide, and you need some replacement for that. I don't think it's a good idea to try to do it all yourself, literally. But to bring it all in-house and integrate it, that just seems like a better way of doing things and probably more equitable. I mean, I guess it just becomes the artist being the exploiter of their workers instead of <laughs> some more elaborate system. But this is but, definitely a trend, right? That that you're pointing out that is happening. Yeah. We don't know for sure why Simone Lee left Hauser and Worth, but one could venture to guess that she realized 
in fact, her career is bigger than Hauser. She doesn't need that gallery anymore. She can go on and take 100% of her own profits and do with it as she wishes and run her own studio and navigate her own way. You know, okay, this is also a name drop that we're not sure if we're allowed to... We'll cut out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so she's starting this company right now for artists that no longer feel like they need gallery representation. Instead, what they're offering is artist management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Them brokering museum shows or brokering an exhibition here or there and like coming to like financial terms on a case-by-case basis and sort of sculpting the artist's career that way instead of just falling into a roster with a bunch of other artists at a gallery and hoping that your turn is up in line to like get your show and get your moment in the sun. Yeah, it's an interesting model. It mirrors what you saw like film and music and this agent model. I think one of the pushes for that is you look at a roster like the big four, Gagosian, Hauser and Wirth, David Zwerner, and Pace Gallery. You know, within their roster, they have maybe it's 10 to 15, whatever the number is of artists that everyone would like to collect. However, access and supply becomes a constraint. Thus, a collector is faced with a choice. Purchase as much as they can down the chain across the entire artist list at each show, smaller price points, one show, and show the gallery that you're a steward of their program and a collector of their entire program. That you're a simp of their program. Mm -hmm, And then you start to acquire work. Wire works down the chain in order to understand and to get closer to the works that you really want. What that does is it fuels a business. It fuels an art gallery's business model. You write the 50% and it staffs the entire shows. And then eventually you get the work. Now, I think an artist at that high end there may say, why does this need to happen? You know, if there's a demand for my work right there, and this is a collector I want to sell to, what's with the gatekeeper strategy? And I think maybe some artists might look at that and think, does this make sense anymore? And we're at an amazing time, I think, in the gallery artist collector relationship. The market's really ripe for a structural change. As you alluded to, the gallery business model is incredibly difficult. It's just you have to have real estate in the most expensive places in the world. You can charge a commission of 50%. Great, but you have art fair fees, staffing, insurance, shipping. And at the end of the day, if you don't sell work from your exhibition, you have no revenue. So there's a structural challenge. And a lot of people feel it's not working for them and are looking at new models. I think it's definitely, as we all know, social media is becoming the gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. And which platform you're on will denote which marketplace you'll likely fall into, though you can like do crossovers. But like traditionally, people who collect paintings are on Instagram. People who are into NFTs are on Twitter or Discord, you know, so there's like sort of social media is the gatekeeper now and something that I'm experiencing personally that's very integral to this conversation is that right now I'm shadow banned on Instagram. Really? Yes. And it's so crazy how they can just shut your pipeline off because a bot spotted something that it interpreted as being hate speech, even though it was there was nothing hate speech involved. And I've heard from some people who've been shadow banned that it can take up to a year to like get this thing removed. You know, Jared Gagosian, this is now my professional life, right? This is how I'm creating and generating an income. And I am effectively right now being neutered by the social media platform that Jerry primarily lives on 
because of bots. So there's incredible power in social media. This like, I can represent myself how I want to be represented. The people can declare based on followers that I am good enough and that I have a place in the market. But then the social media companies can also, you know, censor you or make a mistake or whatever and cut you off. And I mean, I got totally decapitated yeah. on Instagram entirely. The whole, my whole account disappeared uh, no deactivated, no violations, no warning, no warning nothing. Just, and uh, maybe it was a mistake. Who knows? Maybe it was a mistake no or, or some uh, bots gone wild, uh, as you say. <laughs> um, but then again, I mean, that makes sense. Why you still need these human networks? Why a gallerist might be a good incubator well, for I was a young say, like artist? A gallery uh, and actually an institution. I mean, its role used to be to clear a space in the public sphere where you could do something that maybe seemed taboo or was like outside of the normative protocol. That especially think of like you know, ACT UP era or like early 90s or a lot of the battles that were fought in these institutional spaces, that was really one of the values that they brought to the public. That balance has changed a bit, but you could imagine that that's a potential they still hold if they recalibrated to the new media environment. I mean, also, though, we've been hearing a lot about people, right? Like, was it art agents, art advisors? There's still an aggregator, a gatekeeper. Oh, I mean, not a physical... art advisors have been, you know, a thing at least for the past 20 years. But I'm curious, what is the status of the art advisor? What role do you imagine them playing? Or did I just say? Well, you yeah, you did. Well, because <laughs> okay. I was going to say, the thing I was going to say, though, is that obviously if there are no galleries and no gatekeepers. It's just hundredocracy rules everything. Do you know this term hundredocracy? No. Well, I'm sorry, but I will just say it. it's a, based off the bell curve meme, so it's maybe a little bit edgy, actually. Take yeah. it up with just this idea that it's like yeah. when there's no gatekeeping, it's just the middle of the bell curve is what ends up dominating and dictating what your norms the are. The most what average taste right. because it's the taste that the most people have and right. therefore the most possible value to extract. So yeah, the hundredocracy rule by that most average of take and taste. And, you know, maybe the gallery model, they take too much commission, et cetera. It's an older model that's falling away. But where is that defining of a market that's more towards the edge that has a bit more weight than just... WhatsApp is like another extremely powerful social media platform, as is WeChat in China. WhatsApp is funny because there are these groups on WhatsApp of, I would say, kind of like nerdy, really wealthy dudes who are basically, for all intents and purposes, gamblers. And they spend all day like obsessively texting each other back and forth. You see this, bro? I'm going to be able to get this. You want to go in on this? They're, they're co-buying works. They're like, and these guys, it's mostly guys. Sorry, I don't know a lot of women in this sphere. It's very bro-y. They are like driving this tastemaker. Everybody knows if so-and-so buys X, he's going to donate one to a museum. The price of the work is going to go up. Like people are like, will really follow these people into the dark. And I've watched total art world novices drop huge sums of cash because so-and-so is like, buy this, buy this, buy this. I was right last time. I'm going to be right this time. So it's totally a gambling thing. And then the art advisor is an interesting person. I don't want to come across misogynistic. So I'm going to be careful about how to word this. But 
art advisors quite often tend to be women. That's true. And there's a thing called sexuality. <laughs> and the, the allure of sex, <laughs> no matter how far or distant yeah. it is, will always exist. And there is a tendency for the art advisor to be Manolo Blahnik wearing like very good looking, some, you know, some would say a semi pro or a fin dom or these women <laughs> who are quite often taking sort of like lost, maybe like they just went through their first divorce or maybe they're just like rich tech dudes, whatever. And they like the attention of like some hot chick being like, yeah, buy this right now. And like it, I, I, I'm not trying to be misogynistic, but it just does tend to be like a very gendered role. There are male art advisors, but a lot of times they won't call themselves art advisors. They'll go into something called private practice mm. because somehow mm. that like is a separation, right? They're dealers in private practice, but women are art advisors, but it's all the same shit. Right. Yeah. I never really thought about that before. One thing critical to note about an art advisor traditionally is that their fiduciary responsibility sits always and forever with the client, the client, the buyer, the collector. So they are not acting in the interest of the artist or the gallery. And I think people really need to understand that they always have the fiduciary in court of law to honor the ah, collector. Good note. But I think the term art advisor has been used to describe this practice of helping collectors either spy or sell collections and works. But it's evolving and it's becoming a catch-all term for art market professionals that do things like advise on collections, but represent artists perform private dealing on behalf of artists that set up loans for special clients that negotiate auction houses and pin auction houses against each other for their clients. It's a vague term. So I caution people, be careful about what an art advisor yeah. is now. That's why I always joke on Jerry about the at Gmail art advisor, right? <laughs> because anybody who has like a high net worth network can call themselves an art advisor now. Because if you know somebody wealthy enough to buy art and then you know somebody who has some art, suddenly you can be an art advisor. Uh, how does it work legally then if you're brokering a deal between two clients? Is it the collector that's collecting or the collector that's selling that they have the responsibility to? I believe it falls with the seller. Is there a fiduciary responsibility? But there's always issues. Like I think it's a gray area. Legal people are still working out. One of the massive controversial things in art advising was Gagosian, one of the big four. I think back in maybe 2017 or 18 announced an art advisory practice. And I remember art advisors are representative of collectors. However, a gallery, their fiduciary responsibility is to the artist. So you had a massive conflict of interest there right away. And there were some opinion pieces about whether that should be legally allowed. Uh, I think it is. It's still moving forward, but it's a wild west, which is indicative of an art market that, <laughs> that we currently live in. It's on fire. Well, yeah, I think to sum up back to our top point, like the art market's firing on all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, I was combing through auction data. What I really wanted to find out from this was like works created in 2000 up until 2021. How do they perform at auction this year? And what you found is the auction houses understanding the maturity of this now market, right. this ultra contemporary Do you want market. To actually, say a word about now versus contemporary. So historically, the auction houses, and we're talking about. Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips, I would put Phillips in there, structured evening sale auctions in the May season and November season. 
And these were their Super Bowls. It's where the majority of the revenue came from. It's what made New York Times and Wall Street Journal headlines. It's where all the big pieces and the big prices are achieved. And historically, they divided sales up into categories of impressionism and modern art. So think Monet up to Picasso, Matisse, surrealism, and then post-war contemporary, post-World War II, Abex, minimalism, neo-expressionism, and then some sprinkled in living artists in the 21st century. And you would see at these evening sales, particularly in the post-war and contemporary evening sales, a sprinkling of some very wet, hot paintings from two years prior, for example. And they would always lead the auction with these works, maybe the first, second, and third lot. It's called the flyer. And the rationale behind that was, these are very sought after works. You price them super low and you get extraordinary bidding at the top of the sale and get everyone in the room jazzed up to bid on the Warhols, on the de Koonings to come later. Now, what the auction houses learned is that there is a robust demand for now or ultra contemporary works and so that you can build an entire sale around them. So Christie's announced a 21st century and 20th century sale, bifurcating the model. Sotheby's announced what's called the Now Auction, which is essentially 21st century wet hot paintings. And Phillips is the one that's still remaining in this kind of bucketed old school style. And it worked. And you saw the depth of bidding and the breadth of bidding in those markets were exceptional. Talk about the margins of like what people are making percentage-wise. Sure. If you look at works made in 2000 to 2009, so you're thinking about Rudolf Stingle, Cecily Brown, Mark Rochon, Bradford, even Banksy, Christopher Wool. These works did slightly better than their low estimate in the aggregate, but not by much. Give the number. Yeah, 1.6 times. And looking at the second bracket of 2010 to 2016 work, think Kondo, Amy Sherrill, Jonas Wood, Jordan Castile. That return was about 4.4 times. 2017 to 2021, so think Matthew Wong, Emily Mae Smith, Shar Hughes, Hilary Pessis, Nick Party, 5.25 times. Wow. So there's just massive amounts of bidding there. And if you think the prices that were purchased for these very young new works, extremely low, the returns have been really, really exceptional. There's one that's like somebody made like a 1,300% return. Which one was it? Hillary Pestis. It came to auction at $60,000. The hammer was 870000 Damn. Or hammer plus premium. And you know that painting was sold on the primary market for like $12,000. Yeah. Probably less I mean, in 2019. So just like a little side note. I mean, there used to be a myth, at least, that like the value of a work was tied to some kind of critical discourse. And in the aughts, we saw a total parting of this. I mean, whatever, like auction sales have also always been up and down and the 80s had its go-go period as well. But there was some idea that there was like cultural relevance. Like, you know, I'm sorry, God bless Django. But what have those paintings ever done to like, you know, move hearts and minds? But like, I don't understand where the value is coming from. And maybe this is like a really dumb question to ask, but I don't understand why these particular figures have 13 times their estimate success. Can you maybe speak through the mechanics of that and what's driving certain works. Also, maybe this relates to NFT aesthetics because in some places there's crossover. I was just going to say, my theory of it is the meme model But these just aren't even meme I mean, like, even... Sidera! But, like but maybe more. its value operates as a meme. 
right? Like, well, that's maybe I, I, it. I, I, well, like, anyway, um, anyway yeah. Hildy, you, you, you and Matthew maybe respond how you think makes sense. I mean, she's literally painting Wojak's and putting Balenciaga into her paintings now. So <laughs> she's definitely, uh, you know, I don't know so much about the auction side of things, but again, it's very Wolf of Wall Streety or the movie Wall Street. I just rewatched it the other day and I was like, wow, this is a movie about the art world. It's really shocking to me. I know people who, of course, I can't name. Yes, they're on these WhatsApp groups. They're also just straight up on the phone and they're on the phone with each other all day, like money balling each other. They're like, bro, you've got to fucking buy this now. Like they're like calling each other and like getting each other freaked out and you know, there is this constant financial FOMO that art collectors all have with each other about like, were you smart enough? Were you good enough to get like on the inside first? Like, were you able to buy a Jonas Wood when a Jonas Wood was $18,000 at David Kordansky, you know, 15 years ago or whenever the fuck that was and have the foresight for that so that now you have a painting worth $4.5 million. So there are these networks, these invisible networks that actually prefer to not be named in public. And I also know for a fact that there are constant lawsuits against Art News and Artnet to keep these people's names out of art media because they don't want to be a David's Werner or an Emmanuel Periton or known as like art dealers. They're kind of this hybrid of like they're art dealers, but also they want to like hang out with the artists and they want to pump their market and they want to make a shitload of money and they want to make money for their friends. And so these are sort of these more like seedy, I would call them art world gatekeepers and I know for a fact they fucking crawl the internet like they want people with like 2,000 followers like they want people that nobody knows about and then they can call up that artist and be like yo I'll send you $50,000 I'll pay for your studio this year I'll back you just let me buy at x price like everything that comes out of your studio then they can the model. model yeah yeah And then they take that work and then they start pumping it to all their friends. And then they start calling their art dealer friends saying, yo, I placed this work in this person's collection, this person's collection, this person's collection. Give this person a solo show. It's going to fucking sell out. Just make sure that you sell me one or two. And like, that's kind of how this food chain starts developing. And these are the real, like, I would say art world influencers. They're not like scholarly, like art critics. They're hustlers who are looking for opportunity. Mini Simcoe's. I mean, that's the thing. The art is no longer, I mean, it's a trend I think we've been seeing across the culture sector, but it's like the art, the art is the medium and the act of the artistic gesture is the speculation. I mean, that's a very dark comment, but it does seem like there's this paradigm shift. Yeah, that's the metagame. And as our our friend Tobias Spiktig said, paintings are NFTs. They're literally unique, one of one, cryptographically individual, non-fungible objects. And it sounds like exactly the same sort of model applied to this description of how uh, art market functions as you describe an NFT model and and boom cycle. It's the analog versus the digital version of the same game. I don't think it's at all a 
coincidence that NFTs have been basically the first practical application of cryptos and they wanted to adopt the art market model because it's just perfectly fitting mm. that. So yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And just back on the values point, I just wanted to get two cents in there. It's it's a multifactored reason why a 2019 work will sell for as much as a goddamn Matisse <laughs> painting, right? I mean, legit sometimes happens. Four Banksy's equals the constitution. That's <laughs> right. I mean, this is where we are at in the paradigm. And I think it's multifactored. Firstly, Asia, Asia collectors particularly are coming into contemporary art. There could be a little bit of this kind of fear of inflation or tax purposes. So people rotating into these assets. What, was it Mitt Romney when the, the whole like tax billionaires thing was up uh, for debate like two weeks ago or something in America, Mitt Romney was like, if you do this, people are just going to take their money and start buying painting. <laughs> and I made some meme where I was like, wait, has nobody told Mitt Romney that that is what everybody That's who wants idea. to hide their money has already been doing for like a hundred years? <laughs> How much is Mitt Romney worth? I think he knows. I'm sure he, he must know. <laughs> so, so, so there's a little bit of a little bit of that, a little bit of like the investment side of it into contemporary art. I think contemporary art also these prices are you know, the present value of something is the future value discounted back. Right. This is just like basic finance evaluation. And I think what people are seeing here in these prices is a chance to get into a market right now that will appreciate in the long term. For example, you buy in at a Matisse right now at $1.2 million. The market is so mature that your chance to make a financial return on that are very limited, right? It's just the upside. It's very well known. But you look at a... a painting. So there's shit coins, basically. <laughs> they're, they're looking at that. And also, I think they're looking at my wall space what do I want to signal to the world, right? What does it say for me owning a Matisse? Personally, I think that's fucking dope if someone's collecting Matisse mm -hmm. paintings and put it in their apartment for sure, right? But you also want to be on the cutting edge and have the clout and be new. And then last point is, these are shows like Reggie Burrow Hodges. Like people went to these shows, saw the painting, and they're not enough to get on the purchase list at the galleries. Mm -hmm. So this is the one democratic avenue for five or six people that wanted that painting to go and get it. And they bid against each other. And then auction psychology kicks in. You can't stop once you place front bid. You keep going and going and going. And it and then begins the cycle. So it's all those factors or it's none of those factors, but it's hard to pinpoint an exact reason as to why these prices keep rising. But that's super interesting, Matthew. What you said is a lot of new collectors are locked out of the legacy gallery market. They'd have to like buy artists that they find less interesting so they could warm up to the dealers and so that they could finally get the pieces they want. So instead they go for an artist, which is like pretty accessible. And then that valuation goes up just because it's like five dudes like competing against each other for this piece, which kind of has arbitrary value, but their competition model. Right. And you, you can never look at like, so, you know, Flora Yuknovic's painting just sold for $1.835 million dollars. That's not the value of a Flora Yukovic painting, right. right? If you were to go to buy that from the studio, it would have to be appreciably lower because you cannot chase auction prices and no artist is foolish enough to do that. Right. Because what ends up happening is you have a situation like in zombie formalism in the early 2010s where primary prices are chasing secondary prices. Taste changed on a dime. We know how the art market goes. Abstraction leads the way to figuration. And then all of a sudden, you can never lower your prices as an artist. That's mm. a death sentence, right? So you're stuck with a very thin market up there. And what we're doing at Fairchain is taking the latest tech, creating digital certificates of title and authenticity, and ascribing a resale royalty to those as they transfer into the market. So an artist, for example, sells a painting 
for $20,000 at primary, it sells for, let's say, $500,000 in the secondary market. By way of having the fair chain contract, they would be entitled to a resale royalty that would go directly to their pocket. And they set the terms with the dealer who's selling it or with the collector. I actually am doing this. I bought two paintings this year and bought them for reasons of I love them and I want to make money. You know, two good reasons. Kudos. And I also believe that this is the fair thing to do. It's not fair for an artist that they can part with something that they've made for like some deal And then the famous one for me is this painting that sold at auction for like $1.5 million a few months ago, but it sold for $4,750 at NADA seven years ago, New Art Dealers Alliance. And to imagine watching that happen to your artwork must be sting and you know because and I also know the collector who the work went to because I've sold to that collector and they were very public and posted it on their Instagram after they bought it but that collector is also known to be a speculator so what's going to happen we know that work's going to get flipped again and if there is a resale royalty right that is built into the sale of these artists work every single time they will make money and be able to build up a legacy to perhaps support their grandchildren. You know, like it, it's only fair that you, we listen to music, fucking Mariah Carey, it's Christmas time, her royalty rights through the roof every time All I Want for Christmas is You gets played on the radio. Why isn't it the same for contemporary art, especially now with things like NFTs in the age of post-internet, post Yeah. I, I- Go ahead, please. I do have a, sorry, but I do have a question about the model. And this is like, I mean, I think everyone is on board with artists getting royalties from secondary market sales. This has been decades. There has been at least contractual attempts at making this happen. You always run into the same issue that anytime you're trying to have a blockchain application interact with the real world, you have the Oracle problem. Say what that is, Dan? The problem of having any type of real world data translated automatically into the blockchain without there being an interpreter at some point or some type of source that you need to trust. So, I mean, I know artists that have used other secondary market contracts from decades ago. I think even Adrian Piper, she uses this contract that from the seventies basically, but it's hard. Yeah. It's very, very hard to enforce. Yeah. There was a Tsikalab Projansky contract from the seventies and this kind of tentpole statement by dealers about it goes back to Robert Rauschenberg and the Robert Skull sale mm-hmm. in the 1960s, where Rauschenberg looks at Robert Skull and says, I do all this work and you make all this money. He said, you didn't even send me flowers? <laughs> <laughs> so this was this has been a problem that's plagued the art market and contemporary art for a long time. And what we're betting on and what we believe is the technology has finally caught up to make it seamless and simple to not rely on paper contracts or finger crossing. And there's a real drive, and this is the key point, where power has shifted ever so slightly away from powerful collectors, a little bit more towards the artists. Where artists now, because of social media, because of their ability to command and select how and where they choose to sell their works, more so than before, it's not fully, you know, artist full empowerment. Of course, there's there's still systems in place, but an artist can say, you know, you like to buy my work, these are now the rules of the game. So on enforceability, how I always perceive it is there's the carrot and there's the stick. You know, the stick is, of course, threatening, of course, legal action. You sign a contract, you breach that contract, you go to court. Nobody wants to go to court, right? That's just not, it's not an efficient, scalable way to enforce things. Instead, at Fairchain, we're thinking about the carrot. 
which is if you as a collector would like to continue to collect these works and the artist deems and the galleries deems that it's under these terms, you know, the artist now has a power to say, if you won't accept it, I have three other collectors that will. And then you start to create a feedback loop that leads to collectors playing ball, ingratiating themselves to the galleries and getting deeper in the program through a positive feedback loop Mm -hmm. instead. Now look, will there be people that will try to skate the system? Of course. But we think in the aggregate, it's about changing a movement at the bottom up, having artists dictate the terms with their galleries and partnership and collectors will follow suit. And I think particularly younger collectors, maybe even the NFT guys, where resale royalties is actually what they've seen and they don't question it as this thing. And why not? And we know that the funds will go to the artists directly, which benefits them. And what Fairchain's model also has is an additive nonprofit fund that gets fed with every secondary sale on a micro slice transaction basis that goes into things like artist health exchanges, emergency grants, scholarships. So that way, the artists that benefit from secondary sales will benefit, but also the ones that might not, we can redistribute funds in order to create a rising tide lifting all boats situation. And by the way, we've rolled it out. We have sales that are going on fair chain today. I think in my experience, I've sold over 100 works with a resale royalty component. It's a long haul, but I think now the technology is caught up and the artists and galleries are putting forward their leverage and their desire to change the way the market works. It's going to be the new institutional promise, Mm. right? Like how right now it's like, oh, if I I promise to give it to a museum, can I buy it? Like, Mm. and then people are like, okay, I think in in order to curry favor with a gallery and be able to get primary access... They're going to have to. And I want to come back to what you said earlier about the financialization of art actually being the art itself and the art in air quotes being the creative gesture. I think that as Andy Warhol in the biography of Andy Warhol from A to Z and back again, Towards the end of the book, he says, I no longer want to be referred to as an artist. I want to be referred to as a business artist. And uh, I don't believe there should be art school. There should be art business school. And I really do think like if you look at a lot of these programs, I I mean, I remember when I was in school, it was a little different because I went to school on the West Coast. But a lot of my friends that were on the East Coast going to art school and some of my friends at Stadelschule, they were like straight up watching the art market. That was part of their education. Yeah, post odds, if you were in school after 2000, you were totally aware of it, especially if you were at like Columbia, Yale. I mean, I don't know, Dan, you were at the Seattle School briefly. And you know, but at that time though, there was still this myth or something of like critical engagement with the market, refusal of the market or the Michael Kreber, Merlin Carpenter, these kinds of gestures of like screwing the market as though an artist could single-handedly do that. And that's what gave work value. But all those pretenses, I think, have fallen away. I mean, I can't think of any artist that is successfully in a not completely cringe kind of way critiquing the market and having that be a cool or valuable work of art. I mean, I don't know, but I also am like less intensely looking than I had been in years past. Maybe you see something different, Hildy. I mean, a million bucks is a million bucks. Like, I'll just dare anybody, any artist, I'll speak for myself, having gone into 
what ended up being $170,000 worth of student loan debt for an art degree, and then being forced to live in some of the most expensive cities in the world, working five jobs, just to have the privilege to like curate art shows out of my shitty apartment, you know, where I had to take water out of the bathtub. I mean, like, (laughs) you know, was not highfalutin living now, like dangle, dangle the opportunity to financialize and, and professionalize in any of these artists' faces, especially post-pandemic, there was a period where I was like, okay, what will it look like if I have to go live in my car? Like I had genuinely had that thought at a certain point. So money is money. And I, I remember Barack Obama saying like, you know, you could say the world is a bad place right now, but statistically there's never been a better time to be alive. Like I would say you can say what you want about the art market, but statistically there's never been a better time financially to be an artist. Uh, I mean, first of all, Something like what Fairchain does in getting artists a percentage of secondary sales. It's a project that's been attempted for a, a long time, but I think for it to be enacted, like a player needs to enact it. So I think uh, both of you seem well positioned that's to true. actually <laughs> make some inroads here and do it, which is very encouraging. Um, but I, I wanted to know with the way you sort of describe this meta game of collectors of now art, for instance. Um, why uh, why call the project Fair Chain and not like Provenance Plus or like Flipscript or like Platinum Proof <laughs> or something that was just like a, a little more like flashy money, like, yeah, get it, you know? I'm not sure I have a great answer for that, I will say. <laughs> the founders do come from Stanford and I think they're are very proper about California mindset. I don't think there was I, an ounce of irony in naming the, it. The, 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 I think the idea behind it was a fair, more fair and equitable art market, right? One that works best for all, that actually helps collectors get closer to galleries and of course helps artists and the galleries unlock a new source of revenue. We talked about the difficulties of running a primary art market gallery today, you know, from the, the way that your fees are structured to the the real estate and the art fair booth fees. And by the way, Fairchain's model allows galleries to also take part in a royalty. So a 10% royalty in total, eight goes to the artist, two goes to the galleries that sold the primary work, right? And what that does is it creates a potential revenue stream for galleries in perpetuity, unlocking a new model. And because like you need primary galleries, they serve a vital part in this art ecosystem. Well, I remember when I was in art school, I went to SFAI and the pushback that we got was your job as artists is to focus on your art. Like you shouldn't be thinking about money. Like you shouldn't be dirtying your mind with how you're going to create an income for yourself later on. You should just be thinking about like your creative practice. Now I know artists and I say this with love and respect if they're listening, like who don't know how to call an Uber for themselves, don't know how to start a gas lit stove, like can't perform certain functions because they are so deeply embedded in their creative practice that they sort of live in an alternative reality. And I do think that they need shepherds and they need people to look after them and to help them and guide them so that they can live happily in their little universe and feed themselves and whatever. I mean, not every artist is going to be a Damien Hirst or a Jeff Koons. That's a different art form as opposed to people who are maybe coming from 
a more primal sort of spiritually pure, you can argue that space where they really do want to sort of investigate other realms and they don't want to be bothered like learning how to do their taxes. And so I have this question for you though. I mean, like, and again, maybe this comes, I like went through school at like a particular point in the art conversation where I thought that art could tell a truth, tell a societal truth, could teach us something. Art was the thing that spoke where nothing else could speak, et cetera. But I don't think that art, the way that we're talking about it here today, or in the NFT space either has that same aspiration. And maybe that's fine. Like maybe like the definition is shifting and that's, that thing is happening in another space and another form. Maybe it's fashion or something else, gaming. I don't know. But like, what would you say then is, I mean, this sounds like an incredibly general question, but I hope it's not a non-intelligent one. Like what then is the actual value that art holds? Is it simply just being like plausible deniability of an asset class that can evade taxation? Is there anything else there? I mean, is there really anything else there? Like what is distinguishing art from a sneaker? I mean, whatever. Again, God bless the person who can't hire an Uber or whatever and makes this wonderful thing. But what am I gaining from that? Or like, what is anybody else gaining from seeing that in a public space? Um, why should a public institution be holding space for that. It's fine if it's therapeutic, but I am not sure what it offers beyond that. The myth used to be that it like it it like marked a moment in time. I mean, I guess all these things mark a moment in time. So they still do that. A beeple is absolutely reflective of our moment. I think it's valuable for that reason alone, you know. Um but like, what is it that right. like, you know, there can only be kind of like one or a few of those and not the whole entire market can reflect that. So what is it that like art in its idealized form? And I know that auction houses have always been complicated places for this. It's not a direct pipeline. But like, what do you imagine as people who spend a lot of time thinking about art and the art market and, and like a, an emotional value and a financial value of art? What does it aspire to? Like, what does it do? It's a simple question, but maybe you have thoughts. no. Listen, okay, I I had a I came to a very simple answer very recently because I'm writing professionally full-time about art almost like the way a sports writer writes about sports like so I have to go see the games, right? And I had this moment when I was at the Bourse de Commerce in Paris looking at the Pinot collection. And I had this very wonderful woman, Anna Helene Decois, like walking me through the entire collection. It's so amazing. Like looking at all these different figurative paintings, looking at the Erz Fisher, looking at the Hall of David Hammonds, like looking at all of these different things. And then mega warp, all of a sudden I'm at Art Basel in Switzerland. Like we're talking thousands of artists' names getting thrown at me. And then warp again, I'm in London. And I realize it means absolutely everything and it means absolutely nothing simultaneously. And these objects are more, I believe that being an artist is something that's like passed down in our DNA. And I think that we as human beings compulsively make these objects and put aside the financialization of art, the objects themselves, they are only precious to a culture where there is context mm -hmm. for them. And then outside of that, it's fucking trash. It's nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's so it's both of those things. It is so ultimately beautiful and higher than us and a gift that we as human beings have this opportunity to emote and to express and to make these things. 
but really like it's nothing. It's archaeology. And I always have this fear of like, you know, an asteroid hitting the earth and everyone dies except for maybe like one little island out in the middle of some ocean. With Alec Monopoly on it. Yeah. And 10,000 years, they start archaeologically digging and they find like a cause sculpture and they're like, this was king back then. Like, what were these lowbrow idiots thinking <laughs> back then? Like, I really have that fear. But that's, you know, I guess not really my problem because that's the future. But I think it's ultimately important. And at the same time, it's not important at all. The original meme. It's more yeah. important for the social networks that it sutures mm. together than it is necessarily for what the individual pieces aspire to do. Yeah, Maybe. And I mean, like my art collection ranges from Goodwill ceramics and paintings that I've found over the years to street art, AKA things I find in the street that I think are art (laughs) to like, you know, like actually, like I started buying paintings now. And I think if you were to walk into my house, you can see that I have adopted these objects as an extension of like my ego. On that point, I think circling back to what we first were talking about this parallel world, It's like if you remove and you abstract the financial or the investment component of art, when people collect, they're really buying something that can signal to the outside world. Who are they as a person, their taste, et cetera. And it's this like clout idea. And you think about like a traditional collector who wants to populate the walls with minimalism and to show that side of them and their taste, et cetera, and highlight. But also the same thing is happening with a kind of NFT collector who's trying to show you what AP is collecting. And it's almost like this is my brand. This is who I am as an individual. And I think art still holds that meaning for people as a signifier of who they are, their taste, their status. And both of these parallel worlds are purchasing a lot for the same reason. It's financial on yeah. one element, but it's also a lot about look at the clout that I'm holding with my, well, my it's collection. It's not just clout. It's, yeah. a, it's, right. it's not yeah, just yeah. clout. It's expression. emotional. It's an expression of yourself. Like if you're curating your home or whatever the fuck that overused term means, like you're creating a tiny little microcosm where you're saying, this is what sets me at peace. And so when I place these objects, I look at some art and I'm like, that's cool. But like, I don't want to live with a Jordan Wolfson. That's horrific to oh, me. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I would Dan also was a Ted Kaczynski object. I, so. I don't want to collect art made by, uh, who was that cult figure from the sixties? Manson. Man, like I don't want Manson was an artist. I don't want that shit in right. my house. I don't want that but in it's my true universe. Now, with NFTs, I mean, you will be able to see very quickly in someone's wallet. You'll be able to see which NFTs they hold. And like, if somebody had like a cool, yeah. I mean, as corny as like a crypto punk seems or whatever. Like, if you have one from two thousand nineteen, it's gonna be cool. Maybe in two thousand twenty five, that you were like already in that conversation then, right? So there's like the financial speculative value, but there's also the social speculative value to say I was in the crypto conversation like before it was cool. Yeah. It feels like with Fairchain, actually the model or like the business is building credit scores for collectors so that you build up this reputation. Check out my collection right here. And we've created a screen obviously to show and to create that branding for yourself. And I think what you just said regarding like crypto punks or whatever, and forgive me guys, I'm not an NFT expert anyway, but it's like, I do see it if you buy this metaverse thesis that we move forward and we increasingly live in these spaces, these virtual digital spaces, 
then yeah, it makes sense to me why you want to populate those things with objects of that you find interesting, that were captivated in the moment that they were purchased and they have this air of importance. Or I see that. I buy that argument. I mean, it's funny. I mean, punks have their value because of perceived art historical. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, more pure than than apes. That's not the, that's not the selling point. Punks, right. they're original. They're they from 2017. Free. They're original. Sorry, free, 2017, you know? right. Yeah, right. they were free. Um, yeah, 27. Although with yeah. Uh, NFTs and also just about this new market uh, in general, um, I mean, I know specifically with crypto, there's a certain disposition of collectors that's like, we're going to take over art, bro. Like, <laughs> yo, let's take over the NFTs, taking over, taking over art. And like, I, it's like an adversarial disposition. <laughs> and um, I wonder, you know, how, uh, how present that adversarial disposition is, how threatening it may or may not be. And also if you feel, you know, Sotheby's has Paris Hilton and Steve Aoki talking about their NFT collections on the site, even though they're a 300 year old uh, brand name with a lot of gravity. Uh, I mean, did they do that in order to like basically get into the space and be able to flex and nudge and influence it and prevent a sort of all out binary war from happening? Yeah, they wanted to envelope and include it in their in their program and their their but, product offering, if you could say. Bear hugging. I, I guess I'm thinking about like weighing risk, though, right? There's obviously a risk to their brand to engage with it, but there's also I could also imagine a risk of not engaging with it and this heavily funded adversarial errant emergent section of digital collectibles actually like actually a binary war between the it's can't beat them join them that's the idea i mean i think there was like a real moment in the last year where that risk reward ratio switched you know like with people or well before that but yeah yeah i think they've been validated at auction prices the the christie's and Sotheby's see money in it and and they're of course legitimizing it and so but you still in our art circles the analog art world per se you'll still see people really belittle the entire ecosystem of Mm -hmm. nft and i think that's actually a receding population i think people are starting to understand a little bit more because a million bucks is a million bucks. There isn't space for them to actually come together and for galleries, you know, I know Postmasters in New York, for example, has an NFT platform on their website where they allow their artists to publish them. And there will be a synthesis. I don't think there's going to be a takeover and Hildy would agree with that, but there will be another form of medium. And I always think about this, like you read an art history textbook and you go from Abex and pop and minimalism and then neo-expressionism and YBA and I don't know what happens in the 2000s. I think street art might have a chapter in this book now. You might actually have to do that, right? What's the next chapter? Is it is it more, not just digital art, because digital art's been around a while, but it is it this idea of this online ecosystem of fine art. Does that have a chapter now in our history textbooks? I don't know. I think it will. Absolutely, it will. I mean, it has to, because yeah. you know, there's always a media theory reading of art. I always think that's one of the most interesting mm-hmm. threads. Like, how does radio change our perception of art? How does film change our perception of art? How does it change mass opinion and the way images travel within communities? And yes, I mean, NFTs are a reflection of the way our values have changed and the way image currency has changed in the digital age. So absolutely, it needs a chapter. It becomes part of the story. Guess what? There'll be another art movement yeah. in 10 years from Yeah, but I think I said this to you like a long time ago when we were talking. I would dare somebody to take on the challenge to teach a contemporary art now class just of the last five years. Yeah. Because like how complicated would it be to like start at 2008 in the crash of the market and the zombie formalism and come up to 2021? Like 
that would be a really fucking hard class. I would love to teach that class. I would love to, let's teach it together. I would love to teach that class. I think it would be so fascinating. And Dan, I'm (laughs) pulling you in on this. I think it would be so great. Maybe part of that class, and I'm sorry, I just don't, I don't often get a chance to talk about like my personal hero and favorite artist. And so uh, I'm happy maybe we can now. I wanted to ask you if you think uh, Alec Monopoly <laughs> served as a foreshadowing at all for anything happening now. He was pre-NFT. Um, uh, yeah, I wonder what you think. Yeah, maybe, perhaps he foreshadowed or what uh, if it was a sign of anything we're experiencing now. Alec, what a what a hero. Right, Hildy, tell the story. So so we were we were just in um Saint Bart. It was my first time his family vacations there. I had the privilege of being a stowaway and getting to go. And we were joking, I was joking the whole time that like in order to get on the island, you had to pass like a credit score check. <laughs> and it's really funny because it is an extremely clean place. But on two places in the island, and how the fuck you knew this is beyond me, (laughs) in two very obscure places on the island are just black Sharpie Alec Monopoly, (gasps) like, but like the rest of the island there is no art and so we were joking we were we i did a little skit on my instagram about how like he really risked the chance of like his credit score dropping and like him him, put it online you know like him like not be losing his spot in line at hermes if they found out that like he was like sullying saint bart with his street art um so your king alec monopoly is you know, live and well and taking huge risks for the sake of for his art. expression. Yeah. I, I will just to make cool. it like a little serious. Like I, I think about this about people as well. It's like people, Alec Monopoly, like if Larry Gagosian called them and was like, Hey, I'd love for you to just join my program. Like, do you want to be an artist on my roster? I really would be curious what they would say. Mm. Like, do they yeah. give a shit about being in this, like this fine art, or are they just like really happy with the niches they've carved out? I would imagine it's the latter. Yeah. I would imagine people, although I don't know about people, I imagine Alec Monopoly would like not join any of these mainstream New York galleries. Doesn't care. Has his own thing going on. Extremely successful doing what he wants. People. I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. I would, I would love for someone to ask him that in an interview. It's like if Arnie Glimpshire from Pace calls you and wants to do a solo show in New York, what would you say? Or do you want to just auction off things on the primary market at Christie's and make a boatload of money? I don't know. Yeah. Does he care? Does he care about that uh, that validation in this kind of market of, of discourse of contemporary art? Or is he fine to do what he wants to do? I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it seems that they also like to have like a back and forth with their collectors on like, you know, most like yeah. legacy object artists. Like it seems like people like being on Twitter and talking about his sale. He's not embarrassed. He's like excited about it. Right. And I know Alec Monopoly, for example, I know this firsthand. He doesn't have a gallery because he doesn't need a gallery. He has his brother, who's one of those money ball guys that I was like referring to, who literally just gets on the phone. He lives in Miami, uh, who like gets on the phone all day, every day and is like, this thing's about to drop. This is what's coming out, you know, and he's he's hyping it to his collectors. His collectors are hyping it to their, you know, like, so, or I've seen in Malibu, like there's, I don't know if it's there anymore. There was like an Alec Monopoly gallery and it was just owned by Alec Monopoly and it was all just (laughs) Alec Monopoly. There's your vertical integration, Dan. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of, there's this one photographer, I think his name is like, is it Peter Lick or something? And he has like a chain of 
galleries in in the malls inside casinos in Vegas. <laughs> and I was really interested in that model. I remember I went in there once just ask I was just wondering how much they cost and stuff. And I asked like, what's the edition number? Like how many editions are there in this? And they're like, oh, you know your stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like edition of 10,000 for you know something insane for some, you know, big whatever photo. But so, I mean, clearly those models exist. I, I, you even see it in, in ultra contemporary where some artists, they, they just deal on Instagram, period. That's yeah. how they literally make sales. And right. the funny thing is I, I know some artists, won't say their names, they choose not to be represented by galleries when they can be because they prefer to sell from studio and collect 100% of the retail price. And they'll do a consignment only solo exhibition every once in a while when they feel like when it. they feel like it. And it's effectively a marketing tool for them. Right. So it's like get in front of those galleries, boost the profile, bring them back into the studio after the sales close. It's a new model. It's just a different model in this, in this really complex. The boss a new model. model. That? We've said it at least five times so far. On <laughs> <Yes>. this. <laughs> Thomas, Thomas, like, we try to hit it at least in every episode. No? Tom, Thomas so. Kincaid, master of light model also. Yeah. But, um, I, I wonder if y'all think it's like, is it possible for there to actually be some sort of institutional or critical establishment dedicated to like talking about NFTs from an art criticism perspective? And until there is like any NFT artist different than Alec Monopoly, if it's all just self-marketing at the moment, could there be an emergent criticism practice around NFTs? I mean, the value of criticism is so low. That's also part of it. Well, you look at, I mean, um, why why am I blanking on his name? He was writing for Art in America. Why am I forgetting? Oh, Brian Dracour. Brian Dracour, yeah. Mm. I mean, this apparently is going to be some critical NFT magazine that he's a part of. I don't know. I mean, that's going to say niche, I think, though. Probably. I mean, I also know that the platforms themselves, like Zora, FWB, they're trying to invest in their being, you know, editorial and criticism and stuff. I mean, if I can go out on a limb, but something like FWB would have the weight to create a kind of taste market because it already has a certain status within the crypto world as like being a little bit more selective. The people generally are maybe a bit aesthetically sharper than your average eight. Like 5% more, I'd say. Okay, well, I don't know. I I don't know because I got fished out of my FWB, so I don't have access at the moment. I will say uh, it is a little bit above the average. But also, I would just say give it time I don't know like that sounds like a mother be like give it time honey like this just happened like two seconds ago and I mean right now we're in this very strange pivotal place where like as Fran what's her name Fran Leibowitz says like nobody claps for the art everyone claps for the hammer price like we're all very like invested in like the financial side of art but I do believe that like there will be great art that comes out of the NFT scene. Truly wonderful things. It's just, it's a Vegas marriage. Like, it's like, hey, let's get married right now and we'll we'll get to know each other after we're married. Like, I think that is basically what happened with the market. That's so. a good analogy. Yeah. Does the market today actually want criticism or are criticism now just kind of like a pain in the ass, like, legacy thing that could affect their value Mm. like does the market want criticism criticism is fud that's all right right yeah my my gut says no one really cares Uh, honestly and it's bad and i but i I, i'd love to read art criticism i think it's important but to the average collectors who are buying with their ears 
I don't know. Do you love to read art criticism or do you like compelling ones? Yes. If someone can write something really great about a show, I think I'll absolutely dive into it. But the market is its own beasts and move in its own ways. And as Hildy mentioned, it's oftentimes there's collusion or some sort of kind of troika that forms and they invest. And it's like, they don't really care what the the front page of the paper is. I write two things. I write, I write an art newsletter that is like sports writing about what I go and I see at art fairs. And then I just started this other section called love letters to artists and maybe it's not as critical as i mean i admire you guys intellectually so maybe it's not like as hard-hitting academic criticism as possible but it's earnest writing about contemporary art and let me tell you i've gotten about three compliments on my art writing about things i actually like versus the thousands and thousands of people that now pay to read sports writing essentially about like numbers and trends and what people are buying. So that's just been my experience. That's where the interest. Will you take, oh, sorry, go ahead, Matthew. No, I was just going to wrap up with the the point about criticism because it just did dawn on me. It's like, we do need it. I do think we need it to contextualize what's happening and write. I, I go back to like Clement Greenberg, Harold Rosenberg writing about ABEX and like really forming the language by which we talk about these pieces. And it was important. And today, like that's the lens by which we view color field versus like gestural painting. Like we needed their writing to talk about it that formed the language as you carried forward. And like, can someone please make sense of what's going on here? I think we really do. If well, there's someone writing the out problem. there. problem. Exactly. I don't yeah. think there's anybody that's matching a narrative to the mess that we're seeing. And a lot of the art criticism feels like, I don't know, Hallmark cards or something. It doesn't feel like it's actually or it, or it's, like or it, explaining something or itself, that we don't. Or in itself, it suffers from broader mimetic trends of like uh, institutional critique or identity-based uh, critiques. Right, so it's just trope-based. Okay, it's right. Hallmark cards, right. So I don't feel like it's actually, I mean, what Clement Greenberg did, what Rosalind Krauss did, what Douglas Crimp did, is they took the mess of the world and they matched it to something that they saw happening in art. And they said, this art is an expression that we haven't yet found language for, but this is actually what it's saying. And it felt revelatory. And we need somebody who's able to do that. I mean, it will happen. So art criticism in that sense, I think is evergreen useful. But as a daily beat, as a thing that like makes the value on a regular basis for the artwork, no. It's very rare when you have someone who does that genuinely. And so yeah, there's a there's a need for that. And I'm not sure what the venue is for that or the platform either because legacy art magazines are also struggling from the attention game um, or falling into tropes. I mean, Hildy, your platform, LarrySaltz.com, is actually a fresh voice in this art conversation because you're not only putting together your love letters to artists and your what you call sports writing about art fairs and other kinds of art world events but also there's like a personal section you're creating an enclave in the digital space in a way you're like digital local a digital local, like your web three in that sense, that's like off the main stack social media networks, you're creating a platform for like being in the art world, a different kind of enclave of the art world. So I definitely recommend all of our listeners to go check it out. It's definitely <laughs> worth your five bucks a month. Um, do you have any plans on building out your network? Well, I'm, you know, I, I don't know. I'm always really amazed now because I know that there's not a hundred thousand people who care that much about art in the world. Like, I, I don't know. I would say, I would venture to say there's like 
15,000 people. And then like the rest are just maybe art curious or something. And it's funny for me because, you know, I weed out all my follow requests. So like I have done my absolute best to make sure that there are no bots following me and that it's all real human beings that follow the account. And, you know, sometimes I just want to like make everyone like unfollow me or like, you know, like wipe the account and then just bring back the people that really care because I have a lot of people, (laughs) you know, who comment like, I don't get it. And I'm like, fucking scroll down or Google the term, you know what I mean? Like, and so it's been interesting building this network and I've made friends on it. I met you guys through it. Like I'm super grateful for it, but I think the next job that I'm going to take on and I'm working on it right now is I want to make, this is my short Hollywood pitch, like an Anthony Bourdain meets MTV house of style docu-series. And in order for me to go and paint a picture globally of like what is happening with contemporary art, we filmed the first episode in France. I'm hoping to film the second episode in Seoul because of geopolitics and Hong Kong. Seoul is set to become the art center for Asia, you know, and I want to help be an art teacher to the world. I mean, it's very like funny to be like, yeah, I have a hundred thousand followers on Instagram. That is like nothing. Like my neighbors in LA, like they have like 250,000 and they've never thought to do more than like take a really great selfie (laughs) and like, that's it, you know, but I, you know, a hundred thousand dedicated eyes on the art world, I feel a responsibility to not just point out what's wrong with it, but direct people's attention to what is actually good about it. Why it's interesting, why it's a tool that could potentially save humanity. You know, there was an article in 2012 that said in the future, the only job that will exist is the job of an artist. Because once AI takes over, the only thing left will be like the pure act of creativity. If that's the case, I would like to help shift the focus maybe away from like a people and a cause into artists who I think are putting a little more heart, soul, meaning, intellect, whatever into their work. And that's what I want to do with it. I mean, I think the pretext or the subtext there is like artists because you will take an artist to think outside of the dominant protocol. Only an artist will take the agency to do that. But yeah, to like keep a conversation alive about some avant-garde trajectory or people who have resisted the protocol over the past 200 years. I mean, I wonder then what you're anticipating seeing at Art Basel, Miami Beach, or are you going to say something else? I was just going to say, and also- I uh, I know we're coming to the end of it. I was just going to say too, 100,000 followers, that's like bigger than most art magazines. That's true. I'm just going to say, if you think about contemporary times, like does not have to be this text, right? You can speak in the language that people are communicating with today. Right. Whether that's means, whether that's video content, whether that's mobile, whatever it is, film or TV show, which can drive forward conversations. Yeah, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal. And obviously I had no control over what the title of the article would be. And they called me art critic for a new generation. I've never thought of myself as an art critic. I think of myself as an artist. But if that's the function that I'm performing for a larger audience, if what I'm doing is now being interpreted somehow as art criticism, then I guess I'll wear that badge. But that's certainly not what I first set out to do, you know. 
I, right. So what as an artist then, just as a way of wrapping up, you're about to go to Art Basel, Miami Beach. What are you looking forward to or what are you dreading or what are you curious about? Uh, what am I curious about? So my friend, Ronnie Paravino, who's an art collector, who's who was like begging me to make NFTs very early on is curating this thing with Christie's yeah. on Thursday. And I do want to go check that out. I can't even tell you. I interviewed the Winklevoss twins two years ago, like before we met. And they were telling me about Nifty Gate, NFT Gate back then. And I can admit that I have been so NFT resistant. My brain, it's sort of like my grandpa, like he used to just turn his hearing aid off and not tell anyone because he just didn't want to fucking hear what people were saying. And I swear to God, like I have really like been like, I don't want to focus on NFTs. That's not interesting to me. But at this point, I am being forced to confront it. Much like I was forced to confront the cause show at the Brooklyn Art Museum, <laughs> I am forced to confront this NFT world. So I'm kind of looking forward to being uncomfortable and being challenged. I like that. And I love that painful synaptic feeling of sort of when your brain is able to finally make a jump. And I haven't been able to make that jump with NFTs. And I have tried. And let me tell you, I've had Lady Phoenix over to my house for dinner. I've written letters to Noah Davis. I've sat on Clubhouse after Clubhouse about <laughs> NFTs. And I still am just like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. But you know what? I'm excited for that moment where it clicks or maybe eventually I will just have the entitled opinion to be like, it's bullshit. And that'll be my entitled opinion because I've really explored it. So I'm looking forward to that. I like art fairs because it's like summer camp <laughs> and it's like, you know, you get to like, see like who's gained weight, who's gotten a divorce, <laughs> who's richer, who's poorer, like what's going on, who's winning, who's in, who's out. You know, I like the sports side of it. I, you know, and I'm very like judgmental in like a very shallow way. So I like to go and sort of take in the spectacle of it all. You know, I believe it or not, I'm like the most awkward person at an art fair. Like I totally try to Leonardo DiCaprio it. I like wear a hat. <laughs> I wear my earplugs. I listen to like the most peaceful classical music. And I just try not to make eye contact <laughs> with anybody and just like observe it. But I'm also excited because Matthew, Matt is coming and it's your first Art Basel. And I love being around fresh eyes because the youth will teach me. <laughs> so I'm excited and I, and I want to see my friends and, and whatever. I don't party anymore. I'm sober. So I have a very different like experience. I definitely used to go for the parties and the drugs and the like hotel-y, whatever, <laughs> naked on the beach shit. I'm 36 now. I like to go to bed before midnight. Like I'm not there for that now. I'm I'm there to like drink coffee and observe. But you still have all the hot takes. And if you, dear listener, want them, you can subscribe to LarrySaltz.com and you can get a front row seat thanks to Hildy being there, which is great. And Matt by her side. Also, just want to say, uh, also, everyone should also check out Fair Chain. Yes. Uh, we'll, that means we'll you, Alec Monopoly, uh, know you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Also curious, hit us up in the Discord about Fair Chain if that's something as an artist that you think would be viable or not. Really curious. I think it's cool to see uh, the blockchain being used 
used the blockchain. See, blockchain technology being it is, used. It does run on blockchain, in, right? I guess. Yes. It yes. Runs yes, on yeah. blockchain. <laughs> Daniel. Um, okay. Well, it runs on blockchain technology is a, is a it utilizes answer. blockchain technology. <laughs> yeah. um, I think there's been a lot of criticism in our community about uh, blockchain adventures being only speculative, being only about like getting the bag. And I think this is an interesting application where it is trying to use this technology in a way that redistributes gains. For you know, for the artist, so I mean, it's an interesting model. In any case, um, I don't know if there's any other questions that you guys. I mean, we could speak to you guys all day. If you come said, to Berlin, re, you have to re, hang out. I just love that you said redistribute gains. Like that's <laughs> yeah, the new normal I mean, term. It like, is the new normal term. Uh, right? you know, I mean, we, we really need to pay attention profits. to the low the low gains members of <laughs> gains our society. Can... <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the gains inequality is high is net gains, very, low net gains. Yeah, high net <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Uh, uh, yes, I don't know. Speculate. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> um, in any case, Hildy, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. You've pulled back the curtain on this, you know, very mystical speculation zone of the art world. We appreciate your insights. Follow fairchain.art, follow Jerry Gagosian and get Jerry Gagosian, Gogosian on, uh, on, on, Shadow, on Band. Shadow Band. I can't talk anymore. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks. We had so much fun talking to you. Cool. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you, Hildy and Matthew, for coming on the show. For more from Hildy, follow at Jerry Gogosian on Instagram and subscribe to LarrySaltsWithAZ.com. You can find out more about Fairchain at fairchain.art. As we get back into the main NM pod groove, we have another art-centric episode coming for you at the end of this month. A conversation with art historian Emmeline Butterfield-Rosen about her new book that's just come out from University of Chicago Press titled Modern Art and the Remaking of the Human Disposition. The book considers how the Western depiction of the human figure shifts in the decades around 1900 as a sea change of technological, social, and scientific developments bring new ideas to the popular conception of public and self. It is a time that we might find not so dissimilar from right now. So check out the book and send us your comments and questions. Also a heads up that we have launched a special project with High Snobiety and the New York-based Perfumer Society of Scent, a fragrance that attempts to capture the essence of the internet. It's a super limited run as it's really an art project in product form. But if interested, you can find out more via highsnobiety.com. Thanks again to our guests and thanks for listening. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Mixing and music by Low Internet. To join New Models, visit patreon.com slash newmodels.